I'm Stephen Patton, your host, joined by my co-host and dear friend, Jacob LaCroix. This week's episode of Perfect Takes will go over the Super Bowl recap, a lot of good stuff to go over there. And then we're going to kind of dive right into kind of some of the draft stuff that Jacob's been working on from a film standpoint. So I'll, I'll let you kind of kick it off from here. Yeah, our beer of the week this week is Tropidelic. I guess that's how you say it, IPA, like psychedelic, Tropidelic. However you want to say it, it's from 4001 Yancey. Uh, you said you've been to this brewery. I actually haven't, so don't know too much about it, but it's a pretty good beer. And uh, like you said, we're going to be getting into my domain, which is draft season now that everybody's seasons are over, not just the Panthers and the people who missed the playoffs. But we are a Panthers pod, and we do have some Panthers news to go over, mainly being Julius Peppers is the first Panthers drafted player to make it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, you have it written down here that Smitty's been getting disrespected the past couple of years. I agree, but I think Julius Peppers was an easy first ballot Hall of Famer. He's easily one of the best, maybe like top ten, top seven ish edge rushers of all time. Uh, but he's still fourth in sacks. He's just a consummate pro. He played for a couple of teams, but he was mainly a Panther. Started and ended as a Panther, and it's kind of crazy to think about that he only retired five years ago for us. And it's even crazier to think that Luke Keekley is eligible for the next Hall of Fame uh, next season. So it was him and Peppers probably both going to get it back to back. So good time to be a Panther Hall of Famer right now. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Julius Peppers, I believe, is the first and probably will be the only player to have played in a Final Four and a Super Bowl uh, going back to his days at Chapel Hill. So go Tar Heels, uh, especially as AC the ACC tournament and March Madness approach. But I want to I want to touch more on like the Smitty disrespect. Like he he ended up with I believe more yards, more receptions than Andre Johnson and Reggie Wayne, guys that finished ahead of him in some of this Hall of Fame voting. And why Andre Johnson has kind of the same claim to fame that Steve Smith does in terms of playing with uh, shoddier quarterbacks throughout his career, I, I don't see the reason why Reggie Wayne gets in uh, over either of those guys. Uh, he, he played with Peyton Manning. He played alongside Marvin Harrison. It was just he was in a really, really good situation to create all this production. And I, if, if T.O. didn't get in, um, or at least as quickly as, as he should have, then I don't see why Reggie Wayne should. But I digress. Um, I'm, I'm just a big Smith, a Steve Smith fan, and so that's I feel disrespectful. But we are kind of now to the point where within a month, pre-agency kind of kicks off, the new season starts. And I, I, I've been seeing a lot on Panthers Twitter where everybody's kind of excited about kind of this new year. We have Dave Canales, Dan Morgan. And I, I'm curious kind of what you think the the moves that we're going to have to make in the next month or so to kind of kind of make that next step, so to speak. So I don't know if you want to touch on that or just jump into the game. Um, but yeah, that's that's about all we have for the Panthers this week. Yeah, we'll definitely have to sign quite a few people to make up for the mistakes of the previous regime. Uh, but we'll get more into that as free agency approaches. I think you said it's exactly one month from today, so that'll be fun to go over. But yeah, we did have a game this past weekend, unlike last week's pod, and it was a good one uh, in the second half. The first half, kind of a stinker, even though there was, you could call it a defensive slugfest. To me, it was just more sloppy football, you know, a lot of fumbles, a lot of uh, just missed throws, punting, stuff like that. 
But then after the the Usher performance at halftime, where I was kind of hoping for uh, DJ Goddess falling in love, didn't happen. But happy to see Lil John and Ludacris on, yeah. But uh, uh, it was a very interesting performance. But after that, we got a game going on in the second half. You know, Mahomes and uh, the Chiefs had both of their touchdowns in the second half, and I guess the the other one in overtime. Uh, the Niners moved the ball a good bit in the second half. Uh, in the fourth quarter, in the third quarter, they uh, I don't know what Shanahan was doing. We can talk about Shanahan uh, as a play caller a little, a bit more in a second. But then we get to overtime, and it's the first time that we ever have the new overtime postseason overtime rules, right? Where both teams get a chance with the ball, regardless if the first team scores a touchdown. And so Kansas City drives down, Purdy misses Ayuk on uh, it's like third and two from like the six yard line they could have gotten the uh the first down and still had first and goal set up misses them uh they end up with the field goal and then Mahomes drives down being Mahomes uh a nice scramble he had there had some good throws and then at the very end hits Mecole Hardman of all people the ex-chief who started the year on the Jets for the win and it was really interesting to see because I was kind of thinking like oh man they gotta go the clock's winding down but I didn't know until after the game that it's a two period overtime. So it's like mm-hmm. two quarters. So even if the clock had run out, but they had timeout, so it wouldn't have run out. Uh, they would have just flipped the field and gone down to the other side. So it's a really interesting way to look at overtime. And my big thing was, and we talked about this, uh, we watched the Super Bowl together, at, uh, one of our favorite bars. We talked about this. If you win the coin toss, do you want the call first or do you want the ball first or second? And I said second, and I still believe that that's the way to go. But uh, a couple people said first. I'm curious your thoughts on that. I I think you should um, kind of defer. I I don't mm-hmm. think you should take the ball first because at that point, I believe the information is more valuable than a third possession. Right. And the Chiefs, I, from what it sounded like Chris Jones uh, post Super Bowl interview, they were going to go for two. They they were going You're for right. the dagger in terms of like there there will not be a third possession type mentality, and that's. That's honest to goodness why Kyle Shanahan keeps losing games and why he gets knocked is some of this in-game management. It, it costs you. And what, what's fascinating is that as much as people were talking about, hey, why, why do the 49ers run probably more than they pass, et cetera, et cetera, from like some of these analytics standpoints, when you're in a third and four and you're in shotgun and you don't have the two interior defensive linemen over the guards or on the center, why aren't you calling it like a running back draw? Like on that third and four that would have pretty much iced the game, why are you not putting the ball in Christian McCaffrey's hands to go get four or five yards? Because he had been ripping off five, six-yard chunks up to that point. The Chiefs defense was worn down. You saw miscues on that front. And Brandon Ayuk, it didn't feel like he was getting targeted enough. And granted, some of that was because Chris Jones got to Brock Purdy before he got to Brandon Ayuk on his reads. But Debo Samuel isn't a man beater. And what the Chiefs deployed most of the game was man coverage. So you yeah, would and think McDuffie that, was blanketing Debo. Yeah, and it's 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 like one of those things like you got to learn that like, okay, if this isn't working, especially at halftime, let's make some adjustments and get the ball in Nayuk's hand. Let's get the the ball into our best man beater. And that's just, it wasn't the case. So it was just a lot of head scratching decisions from that standpoint. You can go back and forth on the overtime rules and who got the ball first. I, I don't think that necessarily matters as much. The discourse on that is almost 50-50. And if it, you're 
you're hell bent on one way over the other. I, I don't think you're necessarily in the right. Like, I think you need to stand by what you want to do. And I think that again, goes back to what the 49ers lack of uh, information, lack of communication. The team wasn't aware of the new rules, uh, apparent from Kyle Juszczyk's comments after the game. And it didn't sound like they had a concrete plan. Like Kyle Shanahan did want the ball back like a third time, like an extra possession, but that's not communicated with the team. Like that's not something where like everybody's on the same page. The strategy is discussed. Um, and it just goes to show that Reed outcoached Shanahan yet again in the Super Bowl. Yeah, uh, I do believe there is a right answer. And I agree with you there that you should get the ball second. It's because of the information, right? At the very worst case, the, the first team gets a touchdown and goes for two. So you just have to tie it. Like that's your goal. Otherwise, touchdown wins it, two point wins it, whatever. And I, I think back to, and this is a guy we'll talk about later when we go over QBs, two years ago when LSU and Alabama were in overtime. And obviously LSU won the toss and deferred because in college you, you get a chance to score. Both teams get the ball once. So you want to play defense first to know what you have to do. And Alabama drives down, scores a touchdown. Bryce Young leads them to a touchdown. They kick the extra point. So they're up seven. And then LSU gets the ball. They score. It was uh, Jaden Daniels actually scored. Um, and then they go for two. That was Brian. It was Brian Kelly's first year in LSU. And he hold up, held up the two fingers because they knew that they needed to do that in order to get the win. Because I think if you're going uh, like play for play, you're not going to beat Bryce Young in college. And at that 21 Alabama team. It's just hard to do. And so they went for two, got the win. I think that's the correct mentality, especially in the Super Bowl. Um, I, I was kind of surprised that, like you said, they didn't give the ball to McCaffrey on that play where they saw Chris Jones just like staring at Purdy before the snap and he got to him. I don't know there. Um, well, I mean, again, overall, Trent McDuffie, like if, well, if you yeah, wanted was, to make a case uh, for Super Bowl MVP, that blitz off the edge is what saved them the game and put the ball mm -hmm. back in the home's hands. Back in uh, regulation. Yep. The, and that's what I'm saying. Down, that third yeah. and four. Yeah, that third and four mm -hmm. that ended up forcing them to. And Ayuk the... was open on that play, too. It was a quick slant. But uh, if he had gotten the ball to him, like like when he was open, it was a first down. He would have gotten tackled at the first down marker, but it would have been a first down. So definitely not the performance from Shanahan. It seems like in all these big games, he ends up choking like this. We, I, we can't 100% put the Falcons game on him because he wasn't the head coach, but he was still calling plays. And uh, there, there are some really questionable play calls in that Super Bowl as well. And then the Brock Purdy stuff. I know a lot of the stuff before the Super Bowl was because they had come from behind and wins against the, uh, the Lions and the Packers that, all right, Purdy's taken the step. He's finally here. He's one of the upper echelon QBs in the league. I did not think he played well in the Super Bowl. Um, the big play that people want to point out is the use check catch, which uh, if you're a On Des Bryant draw. fan, wasn't a catch. No, no, no. It was in the second half. Oh, yeah, um, I know. Where he rolls out and uh, use check takes two steps. But then when the ball hits the ground, it shakes out. And so I don't know if his elbow had hit out of bounds first, if that's what they said. I don't know. But um, he did not play well in the Super Bowl. Uh, in my opinion, or in this game, in my opinion. And I think, uh, and you have it written down here, like if the 49ers had a different QB, would they have won? Like maybe, but like you said earlier before we were recording, the reason they were able to craft this superstar team is because Purdy's making like 10 cents an hour uh, to yeah. the NFL equivalent level of that. But yeah. And what's interesting, because we talk about cap hits, and this was something that like one of the the first posts I ever did in terms of like, kind of the analytics sphere was like looking at kind of 
quarterbacks that won the Super Bowl and their cap hits, uh, especially in the salary cap era, and none of them eclipsed kind of like that 13% threshold. Uh, you had Peyton Manning and Tom Brady kind of like really close to that line on a couple of the Super Bowls, but these were relatively low cap hits. And now back-to-back years, Patrick Mahomes has done it with pretty much a 17% cap hit. And it's it's pretty insane that a guy that's on this mega deal, mega contract, and they're winning the Super Bowl. And so if you don't have Patrick Mahomes and you have a quarterback tied to one of these big contracts, the likelihood of you even making it to the big game is super small. Like you need to do what the 49ers are doing, building around a rookie quarterback, or you need to have a a veteran that's not on this mega deal. Um, I, Matthew Stafford, the first couple years in LA kind of kind of situation. So it's it's one of those things that's like very interesting. Now, what I will say is uh, one of our last notes before we kind of wrap up the Super Bowl um, is that this is this is the start of a dynasty. Uh, this is the second time over the past, I want to say, 10 or so years that we've seen a team have four Super Bowl appearances in a five-year period. Uh, the first team to do it kind of in that that decade span I kind of I listed out was the New England Patriots. They made it in 2014, made it in 2016, made it in 2017, made it in 2018, and they won three of those Super Bowls. And that's exactly what the Chiefs have done is they've won three out of five. Now, something that hasn't been done since the early 2000s was winning back-to-back, and that's exactly what the Chiefs did. And Kelsey was kind of eliciting to the fact that he's not retiring. They they do want to kind of go for a three-peat, which hasn't hasn't been done, I believe, in the the NFL kind of level. That's something we've seen across other professional sports. But if if the Chiefs were the truly three-peat, they they are kind of alone in terms of like a, a dynasty. And it doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon because this is one of the youngest defenses. Um, they they have playmakers all over the, the the ball on both sides and they have a a good healthy cap situation unlike a lot of the other teams that are not only in the AFC but the NFC at the moment yeah you know what they should do and this is something you said I'm gonna give you a hundred percent credit here last offseason that 30 second overall pick man if if they're having problems with Brandon Ayuk which uh some of uh Ayuk's friends and uh close family I, I believe his girlfriend as well alluded to that uh his time in santa clara san francisco might be up that first round pick for Ayuk would look really good for them but uh and you mentioned uh, yeah. no team has really gone to four super bowls uh in a short span like that in uh the recent era like the, it was the patriots patriots i believe did it twice like they did it back in the uh the, well they went to three in the early brady years and then four here in the late brady years the, uh, the Buffalo Bills did make it to four in a row, actually. It's just uh, couldn't get it done there. Yeah, well, no no yeah. wins. That's the big thing. Yeah. Like, if you want to truly cement yourself as a, a, a dynasty and not saying that they didn't yeah. run the table in the AFC, you got to have a title or two. And they just didn't have that. Yeah. And then, um, I, I like, the, the late 80s, early 90s Cowboys as well. But, yeah. And you had the 49ers too. Yeah, you could you could go back. But, um, but that's a different era. I, I get what you're saying. Like that was uh, before the league was kind of equalized with the salary cap, I guess is how I'd put it. But 
Yeah, um, that that about does it for the Super Bowl recap. Um, I thought it was very fitting that uh, similar to the halftime show where it started off a little bit like, wh- where is this going? That's how the the game felt and uh, mm-hmm. the way it ended with yeah. And I, in terms of our era, like that was the song I grew up on, especially from Usher. And it was just like, that was really cool. And that was exactly how this game ended. It was extremely exciting. Uh, another thing I want to point out, it was, I believe, Peter King at the end. It was in the locker room. Him and Andy Reid are going back and forth on the how the final the final play was drawn up. And he got the the full terminology for how the play was called in um, and kind of the, the ideology and thought behind it. And it's funny, um, Andy Reid said it in a press conference afterwards being interviewed that he pretty much ran this this corndog play in back-to-back Super Bowls. Like that 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 won them the Super Bowl in back-to-back years, which is pretty crazy to think about. You'll you it, it makes you wonder if defenses are going to be able to have a plan for that. Um especially when you have a guy like Kelsey, you have a guy like Rasheed Rice and you have a guy with such gravity in the pocket as Mahomes. So, we'll see if defenses uh, around the NFL have a a solution for that moving forward. Yeah, you said it was the corn dog play. Was it not the corn dog? Corn dog with a little I, I, bit I of... didn't. I didn't. Uh, I didn't hear what it was. But uh, if it's Andy Reid, that doesn't surprise me. I'm looking forward to the uh, the ten piece nugget and the cheeseburger play in the yeah. next Super Bowl that they're. So he uh, he, he said it was uh, it was corn dog with a a little bit of hot uh, mustard or uh, ketchup and mustard. That's what it was. Gotcha, gotcha. King. So and it, that kind of play is interesting because. It's not really a, a read option as much as uh, the QB and the running back, but once the safety goes with Kelsey, that uh, that edge defender is in so much conflict, whether to go to Mahomes or to cover the flat where Hardman was. And it's just stuff like that where Andy Reid, he may not be the number one play caller when you think about him. You, you think about guys like Shanahan, but his red zone stuff is so creative. I think it kind of sets him apart from everybody else in that respective or perspective. It does. And I mean, when, when they had the, the get all their bags out of the tricks and I, we're, we're going kind of uh, over this game a little bit more in detail, it was something Nate Tice pointed out is that they were, they're traditionally known as like a four, three front. This was something Steve Wilkes has been known for throughout his career, especially if you go back to his time with the Carolina Panthers. Um, and they were running kind of like a three, four look, and they were allowing Nick Boza to kind of come down the line and crash. Well, what happened on a couple of those last drives? Mahomes kept it, and it, he was gone. And it's it's mm-hmm. some of those things that Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes are this special for a reason. They have wrinkles and the ability to adapt as a game progresses. And it's just you can't stop some of this stuff because they understand what you're doing schematically from a defensive standpoint, and they make you pay for it. Because exactly like you said, Jadavius Ward comes inside uh, when um, Cole Hardman gets motioned in. And then he kind of lines up over Travis Kelsey, who's the outside receiver in that aspect. And then by time Hardman's motioning back out, the slot has no ability to get out there and he's wide open for the touchdown. So it's just, it's, it's, they're using some of their, their schemes against themselves. And it's just, it's brilliant. It's, it's absolutely like a masterclass. And it's the reason why they have won three out of the last five and now back-to-back Super Bowls. Yeah, for sure. And Mahomes is another huge reason for that. And if you want to win a Super Bowl, unless you're Mahomes, you got to be, or at least to get there, you got to be a rookie QB or be on a rookie QB yep. kind of deal. And that leads pretty well into where we're going to start going over draft prospects. Um, we're about 11 to 12 weeks out now from the draft. So that lines up nicely because we can do one prospect per 
episode or one position rather per episode. And I think it's prudent to start with quarterbacks because that's the, the main position or the furthest back from the, the offensive side of the ball um, when they're lined up in shotgun, that is. Um, and they're the most important. So I think we should get right into it. Um, there's obviously the big hoopla about Drake May and Caleb Williams being the top guys, but a lot of other prospects in this class I think are going to go day one and day two uh especially Jaden Daniels the Heisman winner and then we have like J.J. McCarthy just won the national championship Michael Penix had a great year even guys like Bo Nix who I'm a bit lower on but a lot of scouts and people I respect think that he might be a first rounder so you never know but I think we should start with Drake May who currently is my number one QB and I think he's your number one as well no, he's he's number one. There's there's no doubt about it. The guy has a cannon for an arm. Um, I I like your comparison in the sense he's Justin Herbert with a guy with it paired with the mindset if he he wants to play more aggressive. But I think with that aggression comes more mistakes, and we'll get more mm-hmm. into that as we break down Drake May. So I think it'd be more in line with Josh Allen with less of the running ability. I think he's that big quarterback with a big arm uh, with with a knack for making big plays. So I, what, what are some of the kind of key things you like about him, uh, negatives on him that you have with looking at the film, and what do you think is his best landing spot? Well, in terms of uh, like strengths, you said it first of all. He's got a huge arm, uh, probably strongest arm in the class. Not on par with like Will Levis from last year or Anthony Richardson for that matter, but he's still got a huge arm. Uh, and you kind of said he's not as mobile as Josh Allen. He's pretty mobile. Yes. If you can, if you can see some of the stuff he did against like uh, Clemson this year, uh, Virginia, and then App State the past couple years, you'll see where he tuck, tucks it and runs when he needs to. Now he's not the bowling ball that That's, Josh yeah, Allen. Yeah, he's not the power um, run. <laughs> you can just not set Mike him Colbert. up the a gap. Yeah. Yeah, but. Uh, he can move the ball or he can move when he needs to. And that's a thing that all of these QBs uh, have in common, except maybe Michael Penix is not much of a runner there, but um, yeah, huge arm. He uh, he's not afraid to throw the downfield ball, which is where the Herbert comparison kind of gets in. I think uh, Joe Lombard, it's Joe Lombardi, right? That was his offensive coordinator. Yeah. I think he kind of turned him into a check down merchant and he more, Kellen Moore kind of unlocked that a little bit this year, but I think he throws the ball downfield a bit more. He has good touch on his uh, downfield passes too, which is something that you like to see. And then there's uh, a term that I have here that I got from Daniel Jeremiah. It's called layered throws, which is kind of throwing it over the linebackers and underneath the safeties. And you can call it the honey hole spot. You can call it the sweet spot, whatever. It's the spot in zone coverage where you have to throw a perfect over and under one layer of the defense to fit the ball in. And he, he he attempts those layer throws, which, first of all, you don't really see at the college level. And he hits them, despite not having some of the best receivers through throughout most of this year until Tez Walker came on uh, about halfway through the season. But as far as negatives go, he is a bit inconsistent. Uh, he does have trouble seeing the whole field. Um, like, he can get locked in sometimes. And with an arm talent like that, I, I understand getting locked in on it. You saw the same problems with uh, Will Levis, Josh Allen in college, Richardson. When you have the ability to rifle a ball in, sometimes you don't see the entire field. You're set on making that throw. And that's something that a lot of college QBs go through. So it's not too, too concerning. And uh, the the one thing I will say is, aside from plays like that and his negative plays being premeditated, like he kind of gets baited on stuff like that. He uh, he kind of regressed towards the end of the season this year. And that's something that you don't really like to see. I personally like to see progression throughout one's college career and especially their season 
before the draft, uh, unless they're like injured or something like that, or something's wrong with the team. But uh, he, he didn't really seem to have it at the end of the year. And that's something that I would keep an eye. I don't think it's like a, uh, a red flag or anything. It's just, you, you want to see the best ball at the end of the year. And I don't think he played his best ball at the end of the year. Yeah, I, it's it's the college level. He's playing on obviously like an inferior team compared to obviously teams across the the college field, whether it be a Michigan and Alabama, Georgia. One of those. Even in his, even in his own conference, he didn't have the best team. Like when he was yeah. going up against Clemson and uh, even South Carolina, you would see that the other teams were better. And and that that hurts you. And I understand a lot of people want to make. I wouldn't say brush away kind of his sack rate issue because of the O-line and the lack of playmakers on the perimeter, but this is something I would be worried about from Drake May, and it will also be in regards to the next prospect we talk about, but I don't like how he takes a lot of sacks. I think he has a very high sack rate. Um, when you look at his sack, the pressure rate, it's in kind of that bottom quadrant that you don't want it to be guys that would kind of be in the same list or Baker Mayfield, Daniel Jones, um, Will Levis, Sam Howell, guys in recent years who struggle to kind of avoid the negative play and something that's not really looked at as like a negative play. Because I think when the average casual fan looks at kind of quarterbacks, they almost look at like fantasy points and, and yards and passing touchdowns or a touchdown the interception ratio. And they aren't looking at the fact that like avoiding sacks is a big part of a quarterback's game. And that's what makes Patrick Mahomes so special and what made him so special at the college level. So seeing Drake may take a lot of sacks does make him more um, apt to taking negative plays, which then lends himself to being more like a Josh Allen, because as much as the Justin Herbert comparisons come in, Justin Herbert had one of the fastest in terms of times to throw, getting the ball out quickly at Oregon, and he didn't he take did. a lot of sacks at Oregon. So with the fact of the matter is that Herbert played just a little bit, I think, smarter and better, which lended itself to Joe Lombardi's scheme at the next level. Yeah, that's a good point that you bring up, and uh, especially when it comes to mitigating negative plays, like I was talking about, and I'm looking at my notes here, uh, a lot of the interceptions he had were just really bad, whether it was, uh, there, if they're a pressure or not, it was just, he wouldn't see the guy, and we would just get baited or throw it right to the guy, and I think when you bring up not being able to avoid sacks, that kind of compounds that same issue, because if you're trying to play, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying he's guilty of being like, playing hero ball kind of like prime Josh Allen is for that example. But if you want to make a play and you're not able to avoid or mitigate pressure, that's going to lead to more of those super negative plays. So I can see the concern there. And, and you'll have a, a second and medium turn into a third and long very quickly with a bad mm -hmm. sack. And the one thing we just talked about the talent around Drake may at, at Chapel Hill, unless he goes to Chicago at pick one, or they move down the two and take Drake may, He's not going to a team with a lot of talent. And so it's one of those things that having a guy that can mitigate those negative plays while still making the big plays is a key aspect and something I'm going to be looking at to see if Drake May can kind of correct in those first couple of years at the next level. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we want to talk about the best fit as well. Um, I think he is deserving of the number one pick. I don't think he's the number one prospect. Let me make that pretty clear. There, I think there are quite a few, not quite a few, but a handful of prospects better. But uh, as far as quarterbacks go, because they go first, I think he's deserving of that number one pick, if not number two. 
Um, I would like him in Washington, though. Now, even though Chicago might have a, a bit better offensive line and they have DJ Moore as well, I like the availability of what Washington's able to do. You know, they could fix their line in free agency with all their cap space. They have a lot of high draft picks. They could pick another receiver uh, aside from McLaurin and Dotson to throw to or a tight end or something like that. I like what they're able to do, even though I don't like their head coaching hire or uh, – their offensive line hire, Bobby Johnson, who just got hired as their offensive line coach. Not a great O-line coach there, but um, I like what they're able to do, and I think he would be a good fit there. But he would obviously be a good fit in Chicago as well. Yeah, and that's that's who I, like, I think the best fit for him is. They have a solid offensive line. They already have a number one wide receiver in DJ Moore. They have other picks in this draft in a, a wide receiver-rich class, which we'll get to in another episode. And that's something where it's like if you can rebuild that room, you already have solid pieces on that side of the ball. The defense has been playing really well. I, I think this is a team that can really make a playoff push with a guy like Drake May. And that's why I think it's a best fit. I also like the fact that Shane Waldron is there. He comes from Sean McVay. I think some of the schemes that he can draw up and create spacing for Drake May and help him kind of develop as a prospect and not get locked into one or two guys, like you were saying, and almost get baited into some of these bad plays. So it's one of those things. I think it's a better fit. I don't think Cliff Kingsbury, at least the offense we saw at Arizona, is a good fit. And the fact that Cliff Kingsbury comes from USC – and was the quarterback's coach. Was he the quarterback's coach or offensive coordinator Quarter, at USC? Quarterback's coach. Quarterback's okay, quarterback's coach. And I, I think that's honestly why Washington will lean to and try to actually make a push to trade up to that number one spot from two to get Caleb Williams. So that moves into, I believe, both of our consensus kind of number two quarterback prospect in this year's draft class. And again, like I asked about Drake May, what are the things you you like and dislike about him? I know there's a lot of off-the-field stuff that people want to bring up. Uh, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of him kind of – I wouldn't say flaunting money, but when when you're driving this sports car and, and you're living the life in this, this nice condo flat, which I, I'm definitely all for college athletes getting paid. It's more when you're living this kind of luxurious lifestyle, you wonder if they're – into football as much as they should be if they're they're truly treating this as a the job that they should be because it's it's not the job in terms of nine to five it's when you get the keys to the franchise and being the number one or the number two overall pick you need to be dedicated like a hundred percent you need to be first one in the building last one out and i know a lot of people hate on cam newton but that was one thing that his teammates this franchise this this city loved about cam is he was the hardest worker in the building and that's something that I have a lot of concern about Caleb Williams. So I don't know what your negative takeaways are. I don't want to necessarily say that's Caleb Williams' big negatives, um, but I am curious to hear kind of what the pros and cons are. Yeah, I don't have uh, much of a problem with any of the off-field stuff. Um, I think I think he'll be fine. I just think he's he's a kid who lives in L.A. who got a lot of NIL money, and I feel like if I were in that same position, I'd be – living the life too a hundred percent yeah so I, I have nothing nothing wrong there and as far as drake may versus caleb williams goes they're like neck and neck for me um like if i had to give them a grade their grades would probably be the same it's just i prefer what drake may can do in structure versus what caleb williams can do and that gets into like the pros and cons uh like drake may uh, Williams has a good arm, a huge arm. Uh, he's very mobile. Like he can, he can run around anybody in this class, pretty athletic. Uh, he has pretty good touch on his deep passes as well. He also attempts 
a lot of layered throws. He he would probably, or I would say he probably attempted the most uh, layered throws or difficult throws of any QB or of any draft eligible QB in this class, except for maybe uh, Penix and Daniels. But they have multiple first round receivers on their teams, and that's not something that Caleb Williams had. Uh, he he has the good ability to extend plays. I know we've probably all seen the highlights uh, against Nevada early this year where he's running around for like eight seconds and he's able to find the open guy. He's able to do that pretty regularly. And he's willing to take like face pressure and take hits when he makes the throws, which is something that's another thing we don't see a ton from college QBs. Like they want to protect themselves, but the great ones like Bryce Young last year, like uh, I think about Joe Burrow in the past. I think about uh, Jalen Hurts in the past. They're willing to take the hits on the throws to make the throws. And that's what the good college QBs who translate to good NFL QBs do. But he does have weaknesses, and I alluded to the him running around forever. That is kind of a weakness, in my opinion, because you're not going to get seven to eight seconds in the NFL to make a play. And when he when he does that kind of stuff, he runs backwards instead of either throwing the ball away or doing what Bryce did in college or what Mahomes does in the NFL. That's running sideline to sideline, running mm-hmm. horizontal to extend the play and make scramble drills uh, work really well. Russell Wilson was also back in his prime was an expert at doing that. Even though he bailed from clean pockets, he would still run side to side to find the open person. And they would uh, get a lot of chunk yards that way. I think he needs to, uh, to clean that up. He also takes too many sacks uh, kind of in juxtaposition to that, even though he had a good O line and decent receivers around him on extending those plays. He would get tripped up when he played teams like Notre Dame, Utah, Washington teams that actually competed this year. He would uh, take quite a few sacks. The Notre Dame game, uh, I I always highlight my favorite games that I watched. The Notre Dame game was my least favorite game in terms of his games uh, as a starting quarterback here at USC and even going back to Oklahoma. Uh, that was just a really rough game for him. And then I think his pocket presence needs improvement as well. He doesn't sense pressure as well as some of the other QBs in this class. Yeah, I, I think he has has a good arm uh yeah it's definitely not the strongest in this class i think that goes to drake may um, i would but, say it's the second strongest like pretty easily yeah um i i think Penix has a beautiful deep ball but i i think it's definitely up there in terms of one of the strongest in this class this isn't like a, a class known for just guys that can mm-hmm. throw haymakers so i i completely understand that point I, but going to a lot of the things that you you said are negative from an analytics perspective the longer you hold on to the ball in the nfl uh, the the more likely something bad's going to happen rather than something good. And I understand like the highlight reel tapes, like you've watched that and like those are the plays that everybody goes, wow. And like, that's obviously why he's in discussion for a lot of this stuff. But like when you look at the pressure, the sack ratio numbers, he's he's towards that bottom. He's in that bottom quadrant, just like what I was talking about with Drake May and, and some of the other quarterbacks that you definitely don't want to be listed with in terms of taking bad negative plays. And that's that's where Caleb Williams is at. And when he's played good defenses, like you alluded to, he hasn't necessarily performed well. And that's that's what worries me about him. I, I don't think he plays well enough in structure. And that shouldn't make you like what he does out of structure well, because he's not Mahomes in the sense that he's avoiding sacks at the college level. That's something that Mahomes was doing like really, really well, was not taking the sack. Like he'd hold on to the ball long, and and he he tried to make the play absolutely, but he wasn't he wasn't taking the bad play in result of it, and that's 
That's something that is a knock on Caleb Williams. It does concern me about him. Um, like you said, after I kind of went on the spiel about the off the field, the off this field stuff doesn't worry me too much. He is he is just the kid. Like this is a guy that's five years younger than us, which is kind of crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. Like we've been watching ball so long that now all these prospects that are coming out are are where we were at like half a decade ago, which is kind of crazy to think about from an age standpoint. And there is a maturity aspect that's going to come with it. And I, I definitely think he's going to grow from that. But as a, a quarterback, there are a lot of question marks for me, and I would be very worried to take him. But with Cliff Kingsbury being the new OC in Washington, I think they're going to be very enamored by his strengths and get blinded by those weak spots and not be able to mitigate them. Because what was the one big issue with Sam Howell last year? He took a lot of sacks. And I feel like if Caleb Williams goes there, or even if he goes to Chicago, there's going to be a high negative play rate. And that's that's going to be concerning, especially when Chicago is right now in the position with all this draft capital over the past couple of years, looking to make a playoff push. And you have Washington trying to rebuild and not trying to go backwards and have a repeat of last year. So it's one of those things that I think his weaknesses are not something that these franchises should necessarily be super happy about and should have solutions for if they're going to take him. It's funny you bring up the Cliff Kingsbury thing in Washington because I'm opposite you. I think Chicago is the best place for him here. Uh, Washington for Drake May, we're, we're opposites there. But my comparison that I wrote down for Caleb Williams is Kyler Murray. I think they play very similarly. And as far as I'm concerned, Cl- Cliff Kingsbury ruined Kyler Murray's early career trajectory in Arizona. You can't run air raid in the NFL. You just can't because there's too many talented defensive linemen. Um, but but Kyler so, Murray was very much like, um, and, and I don't want to throw out some of these guys, but like a Mac Jones, a CJ Shroud, even a Michael Penix in this year's draft, a guy that got the ball out quickly, a guy that didn't take a lot of sacks. Caleb Williams has taken a lot of sacks. Like K- Kyler Murray, you, we can talk about how Cliff Kingsbury ruined him. He wasn't, he didn't have this sack issue in college. Uh, here's my uh, retort to that per se. Uh, Kyler Murray played at Oklahoma for one year. With Lincoln Riley, um, and yep. For, yeah, same offensive system, the QB happy system, but the Big 12 was not known for its defensive performances, uh, whereas Caleb Williams has played in the Pac-12 this past year and last year, and although the Pac-12 has been weak throughout its uh, existence, really, this year the defenses in particular were very strong in the Pac-12, thinking about Utah, Washington, Oregon. Even, uh, even Colorado made some noise, but that wasn't much of a game there. But uh, UCLA, too, with uh, Leeto Latu, who we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Very, he played very good defense. Notre Dame as well. He played very good defenses. I think that's the difference between the two. I think Caleb Williams' ceiling is probably the highest. And I think Chicago is ready to compete the most now between both of these teams. And that's why I like him there. I think if they can add maybe one more O-line guy because or another receiver because they have the number nine pick as well, if they can get him something like that on offense, I think they're – their ceiling on offense is very high because even Justin Fields, who hasn't been the best NFL QB the past three years that he's been in the league, he was operating at a pretty high level in the second half of this season once he returned from injury. So I think if, uh, and I do think Caleb Williams is a slight upgrade uh, if he can like hit the ground running um, to the, the level Fields is playing right now. If they can get that, I think he's a perfect fit for Chicago. Now you brought up that, uh, We've been watching these guys for, what, five years now. And it's interesting that you bring that up because 
my sophomore year of college when I lived in Levine, there was a certain receiver getting drafted from Arizona State. His name was Brandon Ayuk. Uh, I remember watching the combine and I saw him. And I saw the QB throwing to him. And I remember I told our friend Alex, who's been on this podcast, I said, that guy is going to get drafted in the first round one day. I'm keeping receipts on it. And you can ask him. And I, my receipts are getting cashed right now because Jaden Daniels <laughs> is going to be a first rounder. He might go top 10. Now, he's not at Arizona State anymore. He's at LSU, which thank God he transferred because he's seeing or like actual people are watching because it's the SEC. But he's got the goods. And th- it was proof this year because he won the Heisman. Now, is he uh, like 180 pounds or whatever? Yes. We thought Bryce Young was small. This guy's like 6'3 and weighs the same amount. So he's rail thin. And he takes some massive hits. But, man, he is the best athlete in this class. Now, it's a different type of athleticism from Anthony Richardson, who would just run you over. But Jaden Daniels is incredibly fast, incredibly elusive, always a big play threat. And he, while he doesn't have like a cannon arm, his arm is good enough to make a lot of throws from a lot of different arm angles. And I thought he had a really good downfield accuracy this year, which is something you like to see. Yeah, no, Jaden Daniels, obviously explosive playmaker. My biggest hesitation with him is it feels like anytime you turn on the tape, he has one or two plays each game that are like truly a WTF moment and not in the good way. Like it, it is, it's like a head scratching. Like I, I'm trying to remember, um, I, I don't think it wasn't the Florida State game, but it was like he ran into, I think it was an SEC opponent where he uh, ran into like five defenders and he yeah, Ole Miss, Ole Miss, Ole yes. Miss. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was like one of those things, like what are we doing here? Like, like you are not Superman. Exactly. Like you said, he is a 180 pounds soaking wet and it's just, he needs to play smart football. And for me, um, I think there's a lot of explosiveness. Um, I think he does have good arm talent in terms of going to that next level and being a productive playmaker. But I think he's got to sit a while. Like for me, and I, I know you haven't thrown out your best fit, but for me, it's similar like what I thought um, Anthony Richardson's best fit would have been last year. It's the Seattle Seahawks. You have you have your starter in Geno Smith for the next couple of years. You can sit him behind Geno and let him develop. Let him work out those kinks in his game. Let him get better as a playmaker and mitigate some of those negative plays or head-scratching plays. And and for me, it's very comparable to, to Jordan Love in Green Bay. Get him behind a, a true starter. Let him develop and pick up the pace of the game at the NFL. And I think you have something there. But I think if he gets thrown to the fire, like if he goes to New England at pick three, like he will have bus written all over him by the end of the year. And that's nothing against him. It's just I don't think he's ready to play quarterback at the next level, uh, day one. Yeah, you, you talk about him getting taking those massive hits. Actually, uh, I saw an LSU game a couple of weeks ago, and I texted my friend, man, he takes the craziest hits. FSU, Ole Miss, Texas A&M, Alabama. But uh, the thing about him is, is just like Bryce Young in college, he gets back up after those hits and keeps playing. Um, he reminds me, and I don't. It's kind of hard to compare someone to a two-time MVP, but his game to me was very similar to that of Lamar Jackson when they were in college. Um, I, I, I think he can play right away at the NFL level, but he's got to go somewhere where there is stuff in place. New England. Well, Lamar sat a year. Like that's what I'm saying. It's like Lamar, did, but, as much talent as he had, I don't think he would have been good if he was a starter year one. I disagree. I think they would have been just as good, if not better, because Flacco was horrible that year. Um, 
But yeah, as far as best fit goes, New England, I think, might take him. But I don't want any QB to go go to New England unless they spend that 100 mil in cap space or whatever they have on the offensive side of the ball. I like Atlanta for Jaden Daniels because one, read option with B. John Robinson. Two, he has Kyle Pitts and uh, Drake London, both big targets to throw to. And three, their defense turned up a bit last year, and they have a real head coach now in Raheem Morris. So, And Zach Robinson was the, the apple of everyone's eye as far as offensive coordinator hires go this offseason. So that would be a good spot for me there. And then another QB that I think would be really good in Atlanta because he, he has a very strong run game is J.J. McCarthy, the uh, national yeah. championship uh, QB winner. Uh, he's not as similar to Jaden McDaniels, but they're both big run threats. Um, my thing with uh, McCarthy is the, the balls he throw lack velocity in a lot of the tight windows that he needs to make. He was bailed out a little bit by uh, Roman Wilson, the star senior receiver, but uh, as much of a great athlete that he is, it's just kind of, kind of stuff like that. Well, he is fundamentally sound. Uh, he, I believe now has the second most wins ever, uh, or, uh, excuse me, win percentage ever as a, uh, a QB in college. I believe uh, he passed Jameis Winston with that national championship win. So he knows how to win. He's a good decision maker. He operates the system well, and he's a good runner. It's just I'm not super sold on him as a tight window thrower. And I think Atlanta would be the perfect team for that, considering they have big body guys that can catch it and a heavy run game they can rely on. And I also like Las Vegas if they're able to uh, get the run game going too, because even with Josh Jacobs sitting out the latter half of the year, they had a strong run game. They did. Um, JJ McCarthy, I think the big thing with him, and it's, it's really hard to put a grade on him because it's similar. Now, Andrew Luck was a generational prospect. I do not want to put him in the same stratosphere as Luck. But when you have Jim Harbaugh as your coach at the college level, and even at the pro level, he's a run-heavy oriented coach. He's he's a guy that wants to hand the ball off a lot and take a lot off the, the QB's plate. And in this case, we didn't see J.J. McCarthy have to go out and win a lot of games. Like the, the, the game Jim Harbaugh was suspended against Penn State, and granted, Penn State's defense was built to stop the pass, not necessarily the run. I, I think they finished the game with like 20 to 30 like runs. It was just straight, they just they kept handing it off. And it's one of those things that he he started the game well. I liked how he was throwing the ball, um, but you you don't get to see more of that. And so why I think he's fundamentally sound, his his sack the or his pressure, the sack ratio is is really solid. Um, I, I think it's one of those things, exactly like you said, he's got to go to Atlanta where they have a lot of pieces there, or Las Vegas is intriguing. Um, they just signed, um, they, they were supposed to get Cliff Kingsbury, but they got mm -hmm. um, the uh, Bears ex-offensive coordinator, which Luke Getze. Getze. And mm -hmm. so he, he runs kind of like a more Shanahan, uh, McVay-style offense, kind of being under Matt LaFleur several years before going to Chicago. So it'll be interesting to see what that offense would look like in Las Vegas. But I think both of those uh, teams that you listed are good fits. A guy that... Um, I, I would kind of put in the same tier as him because I think your one, two prospects are Drake May, Caleb Williams, but a guy that I think deserves just as much kind of uh, credit. And he obviously got his team to the national championship, just like McCarthy did was Michael Penix in Washington. And when I turned on the tape and, and started watching a few games this year, I was really impressed by what I saw. So Guy, guy had a big arm. Obviously, there were a lot of short throws. I think a lot of people had more issues with his uh, ability to throw more intermediate balls.
But when he did throw it across the middle, I I mean, there, there were definitely a couple of throws that I'm sure he wished he had back, but especially uh, during down the stretch, I thought he played really, really well when he, he delivered throws across the middle. Yeah, as far as like uh, people who operate well, uh, I think he's right up there with McCarthy as some of the best in this class. Uh, I'm not, I don't think he has a like a massive arm. I think it's adequate. Like he can make all the throws and stuff like that. Um, and you bring up the throws over the middle, the uh, the layered throws, the second reads. He's, I think he's very good at that. Uh, he's mobile enough to like escape. He's not like a run threat per se. Um, but my my main thing with him is, well, he he has all of this stuff the three main receivers he threw to are all in my top 11 receivers out of what, however many receivers, I think I did 31 so far. Um, he had very good weapons. Uh, his running back, Dylan Johnson is my number two running back in this class. He has multiple uh, draftable offensive linemen and the rest of them transferred away and are going to start at their new colleges. He had a very good offense built around him. And, uh, Aside from the downfield shots lacking velocity, he throws a great moon ball. I'll say that. Um, his main thing also is the injuries, right? Yep. Um, he had a, he had a good career at Indiana. I don't want to take that away from him. He had Indiana ranked, I believe, sixth or seventh during the COVID year, which even though it's a COVID year, that's insane. They beat Michigan and Penn State in the same year. Um, but he had four straight season-ending injuries during his time in Indiana. It was a uh, there's a ACL tear, dislocated. Uh, SC joint and the non-throwing shoulder tore the same ACL and then dislocated the joint in his left shoulder. He's left-handed. So that's his throwing shoulder Four straight, uh, season, season ending injuries. And he's been great in Washington when he hasn't been injured. Uh, but this is his sixth season in college this past year. So a bit on the older side, his medicals are going to be red flags for people, but he did play in a good system with good teammates around him. I think if he can go to a spot like Minnesota, who had a good O-line this year and has the best receiver in the game and the best, maybe second best rookie receiver after Puka uh, and Jordan Jefferson. I think that'd be a good spot for him to land. Yeah, I think Minnesota, uh, maybe even a team like Pittsburgh would be a great landing spot. Uh, Minnesota, obviously more so uh, because exactly like you said, uh, his wide receiving cast in terms of guys that are draft eligible mm-hmm. All, all fell kind of in your top 11. Like he he had playmakers around him. He has a, a top three wide receiver prospect that he was throwing the ball to. And that and that helps. That That's going to make you look better. Um, I think his playing time at Indiana showed that he's definitely an adequate player. The, the big red flag, and you pointed out, it's going to be his medicals. And I think that's what's going to cause him the drop. Not some of his on-the-field playmaking ability, but some of the stuff that has derailed him from staying on the field. Um, but going back to, and this is the the thing that I'm going to keep preaching the the rest of the way as we're talking about these prospects, and J.J. McCarthy was good at this, Penix is good at this, the next quarterback prospect that we're going to talk about is good at this, and that's that sack-to-pressure ratio. And he, he had the lowest sack percentage in terms of when he held the ball over two and a half seconds for any prospect since 2014. Any prospect, this guy is is somebody like when I talk about that can avoid those negative plays in the pocket, he's one of the best at it. Now, can he stay healthy? That's a big question. But I think he's got a a, a very talented arm. You you put him in Minnesota with a guy like Justin Jefferson, Jordan Addison, TJ Hawkinson, where we're talking about if you need a, a quarterback on a rookie deal to to make a run and potentially beat this Mahomes-led Chiefs team, I I think that's the best fit. And I know you and me are both unanimous on this one. 
Um, but that that leads us to another quarterback that we think could go to a team with solid coaching. Uh, we're we're kind of split on where we see this guy going. It's Bo Nix. I think he's very similar to Jaden Daniels, even though he's a very much he he's an older prospect um, coming out of Oregon. Uh, we've we've had jokes about this that Bo Nix was uh, super senioring for like the second or third time that. By the time he'd get drafted, we'd be old men retiring. Um, but this is a guy that I, I think has some good things about his game. I'm not I'm not completely sold on him. Uh, he played in the Pac-12. Like you said, the defenses in the Pac-12 have been playing better and played really well last year. But I, I just don't see a lot on tape that makes me think he's a first-round prospect. This this guy kind of screams day two to me. What, what do you think in that regard? Yeah, uh, Bo, just wait till next year, Knicks. Uh, I believe he has started the most games for a quarterback in NCAA history following this season. Uh, just to put it in perspective, his first game that he ever started was against former Oregon QB Justin Herbert, who's been in the league, I think, four years now. Uh, so that just puts it into perspective how long he's been around. A lot of these guys uh, between Daniels and Penix have also played a lot of games, but Knicks has started the most. So he, ha- he has the experience of starting and winning games at the highest level. He won the uh, the Iron Bowl his freshman year um, against Mac Jones. That was when Tua had the hip injury uh, in the LSU game. So Mac Jones had to play. Auburn ended up winning that game, but he has experience uh, as a winner in multiple positions. He's mobile. He is a run threat. He's got a pretty strong arm. Uh, he's also not afraid of contact or it reminds me of uh, Sam Howell as a runner, how he would just kind of run people over. Uh, and I also wrote down, he's a pretty good punter uh, against Washington state. They had, so you know how sometimes it's like a Madden play where it's like fourth and seven to eight or seven to 10 where you line up, but then the QB just punts it for some reason. They had him do that a couple of times in that game and he, they were pretty good punts. So uh, if QB doesn't work out, he ended up being a punter, but uh, no, he he's a very good system operator. Will Stein, their offensive coordinator and play caller, had him making a lot of uh, screens, a lot of checkdowns, and then a lot of play action. The big thing about him is it's it's only that stuff. It's like short, play action yep. long, nothing over the middle, no layer throws, and the balls that he does throw deep over the middle hang in the air. The velocity is a bit inconsistent there, and I, I agree with you there. I don't see enough on tape where I could say. This is a number one or uh, round one guy, especially looking at uh, Troy Franklin, the star receiver they had, who did a lot of the dirty work for him. He kind of housed a lot of the balls that uh, Nick's threw to him. So I don't really see that there. I see more day two. I actually have early day three written down here. Uh, I'm a bit harsher in my grading. But um, yeah, I like a spot like Denver that has Sean Payton. Yep. Uh, if they end up keeping Russ, he could sit behind Russ. Even if they don't, they could bring in one of the free agents we'll talk about here, and he could sit behind them for a year. But this is a really good system operator. It kind of reminds me of Drew Brees. And I don't want to take it away from Drew Brees because he's a legendary QB. But the way he's able to operate the system with efficiency reminds me of Drew Brees. Yeah, like you said, it's it's a bunch of – and this is something with uh, some of the play calling stuff I do. I, I include screens and play action as almost easy buttons in the offense. And these these are opportunities for the play caller to give the quarterback just an easy just make make the throw here. Like you just have to throw the ball here. You don't have to read the field. Uh, there's nothing complicated about what's going on. You just have to make the play. 
And so for me, as as a guy that's as old as Bo Nix, that has had as much experience, <laughs> I would have liked to see a little bit more to his game. And we haven't seen that. So uh, I think Denver's a good landing spot. I think Philadelphia with some of the issues potentially with Jalen Hurts this past year, maybe they do what they did when they had Carson Wentz at quarterback and they had just extended him. You get a guy in the, the second or third round, um, maybe like you said, it goes to even the fourth round. You, you put him behind Jalen Hurts, and with that offense, they have Callum Moore now as the offensive coordinator. They have Nick Serrani as the head coach who is offensive-minded. I, I think that's a place where he can sit a couple years and develop uh, to where he can make some of those throws. Maybe I, it's hard to say that a guy at his age is going to be able to put a little bit more velocity or, or juice or zip on those throws across the middle, but you just never know. Uh, and with the way Philadelphia builds their roster, you guys, you have guys in the building like A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, Dallas Goddard. Um, sky's the limit in terms of having playmakers there that kind of bail you out and do the dirty work like you were saying. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more there. And it, it's fun – or not funny, but it's interesting that we bring all this up because it started with well, if the Niners had XQB, they would have won. So we look at rookie QBs. And as far as the QB uh, carousel or availability goes this year – the rookies are really the uh, the cream of the crop because in free agency, the cupboard is kind of bare. The big one is obviously Kirk Cousins, right? Where is he going to go? Is he going to go back to Minnesota? Is he going to be a guy that the uh, 49ers maybe look at? Who knows? But then after that, it's guys like Tannehill. It's guys like Jacoby Brissett, who I think is a very capable spot, spot starter or backup. And then Baker Mayfield, who had a career resurgence this year with Dave Canales uh, leading the offense down there. In Tampa Bay. So if you're a team that needs a QB, I think it might be almost better to take a risk on these rookies rather than some of the older guys, unless you're like 100% locked in, ready to win a title, then maybe take a chance on Kirk Cousins. But other than that, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. So Kirk Cousins, Ryan Tannehill, they're both 36 years old. They're both dealing with injuries. Uh, Kirk Cousins is coming off that Achilles injury. Ryan Tannehill was kind of in and out of the lineup. Granted, Tennessee's O-line was abysmal, so it was very hard for Tannehill to kind of just stay upright in a pocket. But it's one of those things, they're older, they're on the back nine of their careers, and you just wonder how much juice they have left. Now, with Arthur Smith being hired in Pittsburgh, I think Ryan Tannehill is going to be at least a backup in Pittsburgh. I really feel like that's the landing spot initially, probably about halfway through the season. I thought Kirk Cousins would kind of be the guy that would go there. Uh, maybe Kirk Cousins lands in Atlanta. I know that was a, a landing spot we had for some of these rookie prospects. Um, I, it's it's interesting. Those two kind of concern me from an injury and age standpoint. Um, Jacoby Brissett, I, I think he would be great in like a Denver situation. I think this guy uh, does a good job at mitigating the negative plays. He makes the plays that he's supposed to on time, in schedule, in rhythm. And that's something that Sean Payton can work with. And then if you were the draft, say, like where you had Bo Nix kind of lined up as a prospect here, um, I, I think you you run with that for the next couple of years that Sean Payton can maybe make, make a playoff push, even though he's playing in a division with quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert. And the Raiders are obviously going to be feisty underneath Antonio Pierce. So that'll be interesting. Um, Baker Mayfield, I don't, I don't know where he's going to land. I mean, Dave Canales leaves. Um, I think they hired, if I'm not mistaken, did they hire Brian Johnson or did they go somewhere else with that? Uh, uh, 
I'm not sure, uh, Bucks offensive coordinator. Yeah, I heard I'm that they sure. interviewed uh, Brian Johnson. Um, I don't think they went with him. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're still interviewing. Yeah, uh, all I'm seeing is confirmed. Liam so. Cohen is their new offensive coordinator. Uh, oh, Rams. Uh, Rams, Rams and Kentucky Wildcats. Liam yep. Cohen, correct? Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that'll be interesting there, yeah. I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'll have to do a little bit more research on that. Um, stuff's still coming in. Most of the hires have been finalized, so I, I think we'll have an episode that'll break that down a little bit more. Uh, whether he stays there, maybe he's on the move somewhere. I know there's a, a lot of talk about Tua being extended. Maybe he gets signed as the backup there to kind of create some competition there. Uh, we talked about Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts. Minnesota, they have an opening. So I think he's going to be a hot landing quarterback. Um, I, I don't know if he'll produce at that next stop. He obviously played well this past year in Tampa. Um, but yeah, that's that's something we'll see. Um, we're, we're wrapping up the episode now, um, unless you, you want to talk about the, your, your best landing spots for each of these free agency guys. Um, I, I think we're ready to move in the perfect takes. Yeah. Uh, just real quick out of all the QBs that we talked about, the one that I didn't mention that I think has the best chance of sticking in the league and even has franchise upside is Spencer Rattler. Um, he's obviously started at Oklahoma was supplanted by Caleb Williams and then transferred to South Carolina. But I saw real growth there, and he was the number one recruit for a reason. Like, he has the arm taunt, the athleticism. He just had some kind of uh, – and this was highlighted on uh, – I don't remember what show it was, but like kind of the Elite 11 camps that he was at. He had kind of an attitude, and um, he was like a running – or yeah. not a runny mouth, but he ran his mouth, I guess. Um, but he seems more locked in and he's actually, after all those guys, he's my next QB. So if there's anybody that can, uh, stick, that's not one of them, it's him. But, uh, I do think we're good to move into perfect takes. Um, and since we're in the, the pre-draft or draft season, I think it's prudent that most of, if not all of our takes are draft related and, or like draft bet related, like, because we're going to be getting sports, mobile sports betting here soon in North Carolina. So my take here, and since we're going over QBs, my take is going to be, we're going to see four or more first round QBs this year. Now we only saw three last year. We thought Levis could have been, he wasn't, I, I'm pretty locked in on the top two. I think Jaden Daniels will go top 10. And I think we're going to see McCarthy, Penix or Knicks, some combination of those guys go in the first round. Okay. Uh, four or more is is very intriguing. I don't think we've seen that since the year Trevor Lawrence was drafted when you had Lawrence and then Zach Wilson and then Fields and then Mac. Um Cherry Lance was third in that class as well. Yeah. Uh he's he's kind of afterthought now as uh Dak Prescott's backup. Um but yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting take. Um, I think there's a lot of credence to that. I think this is a good quarterback class. There's there's some talent, like you said. There's obviously some holes around the NFL, and the free agency class doesn't look so hot. So it definitely seems like teams could turn to the draft to find the answer. Um, my take is going to be, and I don't think it's necessarily the Bears that are going to be the one to take it. That's that's not part of the take, so I, I want to be very clear about it. I just I don't think the Bears are going to be, be picking at one, but I think Caleb Williams would be the number one overall draft pick. I think everything's heading that way. I think everybody is enamored by kind of those highlight plays. I think he's going to tear up the combine in terms of some of the measurements, and he may even skip the combine. We've seen some of the, the top prospects kind of um, – not, I wouldn't say avoid it, but they've just kind of 
done their pro day, kind of focused on what they're doing and and the interviews they have with teams rather than kind of going through that muck. Um, so I, I think Caleb Williams will be the guy at number one, even though both of us are consensus quarterbacks. Uh, that top quarterback is Drake May. So if Drake May lands at two, um, that'll be interesting to see. But yeah, Caleb Williams at one is is my perfect take. Uh, and with that, we are all wrapped up. If you guys have any draft-related content questions, we'll be covering offensive positions for the next, what, we got wide receivers, offensive line, tight ends. Uh, at least the next month or so, we'll be covering the offensive side of the ball. And it'll be it'll, it'll be fun to see uh, some of these prospects. We'll actually be able to talk about guys the Panthers could go after uh, since we have our guy with Bryce Young. We didn't really have any guys that would land here in Carolina and I, I think that about does it. You have anything else for us? Uh, the last four first overall QBs didn't throw at the combine. So there's your combine note there for Caleb Williams. Yeah. So if Caleb Williams skips the combine and Drake May is at the combine, I think that's a lock. So uh, we'll have confirmation on that in what? It's the end of February, top of March yes. is, is the combine. Yes. So that'll be a lot of fun. We'll also talk about that on the podcast. Uh, you guys enjoy the rest of your week and we will catch you next Tuesday.